The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. It's good to see all of you. Um, Excuse me, uh, as I continue to work on my book, which is due in about eight days, um, I'm trying to live out what I'm writing about. It's very hard. You know, I'm being content under this, the circumstances of this deadline. But this morning, um, we're taking, I'm taking two of the chapters that I'm going to write, and we're going to try to do it in this short time because um, we're running out of time even in this BFL class. So, you know, we have a lot to cover, uh, especially the, the massive um, Im- impact of this topic. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, contentment and suffering and just what a, a challenge that is and how important that is, how vital it is, actually. I'm going to argue that fundamentally God is going to orchestrate difficult and painful circumstances in your life and put you on a lampstand to give light to everyone in the house. That Actually, the suffering, to some degree, is the most powerful lampstand you'll ever be on in your life. And that if you don't carry yourself with Christian contentment, you will, it'd be effectively like putting that light under a bushel basket. I mean, no one will see anything because that's what the world, all the world does with suffering. Uh, they complain, they murmur, they're frustrated, they're angry, they try to get out from it, etc. For Christians to live differently, this is the greatest witness we can ever have. And I'm going to say that this is what our brothers and sisters in Christ that have been most used by God throughout history to advance the gospel, this is what they did. Uh, this is how the gospel conquered, spiritually conquered the Roman Empire, is by how people suffered, how they died. Uh, and for us to draw inspiration, more than just inspiration, but just follow that example, that's what I'm going to argue f- for today. And that we have opportunities to, to get ready for bigger trials uh, throughout our lives. Remember, we've been saying that this is any and every situation. Every day, you have a chance to learn how to be abased and how to abound, you know, how to, how to have difficult circumstances and how to flourish. And God gives you a little of this and a little of that, but he wants to teach you lessons of contentment through, through it. But I think we all recognize that there's a very real possibility that um, some of the harder trials are still yet to come. And uh, honestly, if, if we are not in that final generation, then we're going to die uh, physically. And that is going to be a test. Uh, when you realize that your days on earth are not just generally numbered, but you can see, you can see the end coming, how will you be? You know, how will you carry yourself when you know that you're going to die? Will you be able to carry yourself with peace and joy and give a testimony of faith to people surrounding you, people watching you? If you have that chance, not everyone does. Sometimes people die instantly in in accidents, etc., and they don't have a chance to put anything on display. That's just God's providence, but some people do. And they know that their days are probably coming to an end. You don't really know that for sure because people get up out of amazing medical situations and are healed. Uh, but will we carry ourselves with grace and dignity? Will we, will we suffer well? Will we die well? And what I would say is that you actually get opportunities throughout your life to practice for that. You know, how you handle little moments of adversity throughout, that's a time for you to grow and to be stronger. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's open in prayer and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for this time to study. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who have been coming so faithfully. Thank you for uh, the weightiness, the significance of this topic of Christian contentment. It's something that we need to hear, uh, something that we need to be reminded of, and we need your help. We need to know more than just the principles. We need to know more than just the words. 
Uh, we need to have you work these, uh, these truths into our lives by the power of your Spirit. We need your help. And so I pray that you would, uh, Lord, teach us what to do and then give us power to live it out. Uh, strengthen each of us. Help me as I have the opportunity to teach uh, again this morning. Uh, give me grace to f- uh, finish this class well, to be able to teach well, and to encourage my brothers and sisters in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. So this really is, yeah, this is our last, um, uh, second to last. We have one more after this. So next week I'm going to talk about practical applications and, you know, how to fight for, for contentment, how to fight for joy in your life, so that the, and, and looking back over some of the things that we've learned. But today I want to talk about two topics, uh, if we get to it. I, I really do want to do some on the second topic, if I can, but I want to give more of my time to the first. And that is, the first is contentment and suffering, uh, how to uh, go through suffering, even extreme suffering, uh, with a content heart, trusting in the Lord. And the second is I want to uh, argue that contentment is not complacency. I want to talk about what that means, what complacency is, that they're two different things. And I want to, uh, to show that actually biblical contentment feeds zeal for holiness and feeds zeal for the spread of the gospel. They're not, they're not opposite. So we'll talk about those things today. Let's go back and review as we've, been, we've done every week. First, our, our basic text on Christian contentment is Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Would love it if somebody could read that for us. Okay, so this is a vital text. Paul is talking to the Philippians who sent him money. Uh, he wants to thank them for the money that they sent, but he wants to use it as a teaching tool and opportunity. He's saying that his great joy in the money that he says, and it's not on, on the sheet there, but it's in Philippians 4.10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you've renewed your concern for me. Uh, he says, look, I'm not saying this because of the money. I know that'd be easy for you to think. Oh, you're really, really happy about the money. It's like, not so much. Because I want to tell you how I live my life. I want to tell you how I go about every day uh, my life. I want to teach you something that I've learned through all of the twists and turns of providence in my life. I've actually learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I want you to know that before the money came, I was trusting in God. I was peaceful. I was resting in Him. I was content. And I'm content now that the money's here, but not really about the money. And I will be content after it's gone, and I don't know where the next bag of money is going to come from. I'll be content then too. And so really, I want to give you indications of a journey of sanctification, Philippians, that I want you to take. I I would like you to follow my example, uh, just what he said a moment ago. He said, you know, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. He's just doing that, saying, imitate me now. Imitate me in this contentment. That's what he wants to do. So he's commending himself as a role model of Christian contentment. The word content means self-sufficient. And we work through that. We, we do not understand that in a secular sense or in a prideful sense. That is what the word says literally in the Greek. But we've come to understand, uh, put, putting together everything that Paul says, he, he knows very well that he is a branch and that Christ is the vine and that apart from Christ he can do nothing. I mean, when you look at, at the end of the little section in verse 13, what is the secret? I can do everything through him who strengthens me. He's not in any way independent from the one who strengthens him, God or Christ. So he's not teaching independence from God. He's actually teaching independence like God. He's independent like God is. That's what it is. God doesn't need anything from creation. He, didn't, he doesn't need the creature and Paul says, I've learned the secret of being the same way. 
I don't have to have physical life, actually. I don't have to stay alive. If I'm deprived of air, if I'm deprived of water, if I'm deprived of food, I will die and depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, if God wants me to keep on going in this world and keep on serving you, Philippians, and keep on advancing the gospel, first of all, he's going to have to keep getting me air. And, and then in, in due course after that, he'll have to get me water. And, and then beyond that, he'll have to keep giving me food, and then I'll keep serving him. But either way, I'm at peace. And I want you, he would say, to be the same. I want you to learn the secret of being God-sufficient in any and every situation, that God is enough for you. That's what he's teaching. So that's Philippians. Then uh, Jeremiah Burroughs in his Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment gives us this definition. Can someone read this uh, for us right on the page? Fantastic. So we saw um, kind of two main headings in that definition. It's a frame of spirit, an attitude, a disposition, a demeanor, okay, which he describes with four adjectives, which I'll go back over in just a moment. Uh, But the key is it's a frame of spirit that relates to God's disposal, And the word disposal, I think we would have to uh, see as God's sovereign decrees, God's decisions about you. So these are the two headings, frame of spirit, God's decrees or disposal about you. So you look at that. And so the frame of spirit is described with four adjectives, sweet, inward, quiet, gracious, sweet as opposed to bitter or sour. It's a sweetness to Christian contentment. It's, uh, It's an inward thing. You're not acting. It's not acting job. It's not hypocrisy. We're not faking it till we make it. It's not, you know, we're not putting on a mask. But we, from the inside, feel this. It's inward. It's a quiet frame of spirit as opposed to uh, a tumultuous, roiling, tempestuous spirit that has no peace at all, but placid under the hand of Christ, just like when Jesus said, peace be still. There's a peacefulness that is inward in this contentment. And it's gracious in that it's uh, only attainable by sovereign grace. We don't use the word gracious to mean that he's a gracious person, she's a gracious woman. That's a great word, and it's so close to contentment that we might be, you know, go off in the wrong direction. No, what he's saying is this, you, can't, you can't do this. This is something that's supernaturally worked in you. There's nothing that you can do to bring it about by New Year's resolutions or by act of the will or pulling up your bootstraps or whatever. This is something only God can work. It's just so supernatural. But God will give you this grace as a Christian, as a child of God. It's a gracious frame of spirit. And how does it relate to God's disposal? Well, you recognize that God's decisions about you are wise and fatherly. He is your heavenly father. Everything he decides about you is loving. He is kind to you. He does what's best for his children. We said it could have been kingly, and that would be biblically accurate, that God does what's best for the kingdom too. But Burroughs chose fatherly because he wants you to know he loves you. And that what's best for the kingdom and what's best for you are the same thing. You'll find that out in heaven. In the end, you'll find out that what was best for the glory of God and for his kingdom was best for you as well. And it's, so it's wise and fatherly. And how do they fit together? Freely submits to and delights in. That's the connection. All right? You see God making decisions about you and you submit. You don't fight it. You're not rebellious against it. But you submit to it freely, not under compulsion. Freely you give yourself to God. Freely you give yourself to your Heavenly Father and say, whatever you decide for me is right. And you actually delight in it. Maybe not in, an, in, the, in the situation itself. Jesus didn't delight in the actual mechanics of crucifixion. That would make him twisted and masochistic. He endured it, it says in Hebrews. 
despising the shame, meaning thought little of the shame. He saw that it was painful physically. It was painful societally or relationally. There was a shame involved. He knew all that. And he went through all that, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. He saw beyond all of that suffering to the eternal joy, and it was worth it, Hebrews 12, 2. So that's the, the definition. So much in there. And in every condition, that means all the time. Every single moment of every day. That's what we're talking about. All right, so that's the definition. Last week, we looked at contentment and marriage. I'm glad we exhausted that topic so that there's literally nothing more we could possibly have said about it. So now we're moving on to the next topic, um, and that is contentment and suffering. Now, if we look at contentment and suffering, and also, as I mentioned, I want to talk at the end about contentment is not complacency. All right, contentment is hardest. The first thing I'm going to assert here is contentment is hardest to attain and yet most valuable in times of suffering, and that's even more true the more intense the suffering. All right, so let me just stop and say why. Why would you say that, do you agree, and, and if so, why would you say that contentment in the midst of suffering is very valuable? Okay, so God, you, other people are watching you, and I would put that in two categories. Christians are watching you, and non-Christians are watching you. So Brian, tell me, uh, uh, let's say to other Christians, how is that a ministry to them? Yeah, we're helping each other. We're, we're all in this together. We're a team. We're a body. And so we really do care. You know, we love our neighbors ourselves. And we really want to help someone else. Paul's doing that with Philippians 4, isn't he? It's like, let me talk about the money. <laughs> so he's really trying to help them be content. Okay, what about non-Christians, Brian? How is that uh, for them? Yeah, it's a great platform for the gospel. Uh, everybody goes through suffering. This is the whole thing about the providence of God. It very, is, it very much is mysterious. Christians, non-Christians go through the same things. Get the same diagnosis from the oncologist. Both of their houses are destroyed by the same hurricane. I mean, it's the exact same thing. It seems like God doesn't treat his children any differently at all, but they, they're not looking at it properly. He does something very different inside, in the heart, in the soul of someone who's born again than he's doing in somebody who's lost. And they're without hope and without God in the world. But we still have good hopes for our lost neighbors. We want to see them come to Christ. The, 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 this is the day of salvation. And so we actually, we could pray, say, oh Lord, would you please make me an instrument of salvation to some lost people, people that would ask me to give a reason for the hope that I have. But you understand, the more you go on, if that's really going to happen, it's likely going to be most dramatically through your suffering. You could well see that you would get a, uh, a very serious diagnosis because God wants you to witness to some medical professionals or some fellow sufferers of that exact same diagnosis. And that the price tag of getting in that room is you have to be afflicted. You have to get sick. But the key, what I'm saying here in contentment is, if you're not content, you will not be able to be a witness. No one will ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have because you don't evidently have any hope. So you have to evidently have hope. You have to live it out. You have to show in your demeanor and your words and how you carry yourself that you have hope. And so this is a supernatural work. And so what I'm saying is you get to practice, you get to train and, and, and get ready for this in a thousand little ways before the big one happens. And so it actually really does matter how you carry yourself in a traffic jam or when you're having car trouble or when you have minor aches and pains or whatever. That's actually opportunities, any and every situation that God's giving you to train and prepare to suffer well. So um, one thing we left out, how does it help you to be content? <laughs> And this is an easy one if you think about it. I mean, here are the options. You could be content in that or you could be discontent in that. Why would it help you to be content? I mean, that, that's incredible. That's marvelous. But here, that was a very expensive lampstand that God put you on. 
You know, Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it up in its stand so it may give light to everyone in the house. I guess I would argue that at least one of the stands is suffering. Providential suffering. And so you can obviously or evidently be hope-filled. So that's what we're talking about. All right, so yes, the reason that it's beneficial for us is there's not a lot of difference between contentment and happiness. I mean, it's, it, you could argue there's some, some differences, uh, et cetera, but I'm just saying, let's just keep it simple. You can be happy or not happy. Why would it be beneficial to you to be happy? Just think about that for a while. You'll come to a certain conclusion. All right, so it's beneficial for everybody involved uh, for you to be content in the midst of suffering. Think about the rare jewel of Christian contentment and what it is that it takes to make a diamond. You think about the intense temperatures, the intense pressures, uh, this is a good metaphor. It's a good sense of what it would take to form Christ in us going through these things. And so also, Christian characters form most powerfully in times of suffering. Uh, James 1, 2 through 4. Could someone read that for us? All right, so trials are essential to our sanctification. Trials involve suffering. There's, it's essential to our sanctification. Without it, we will be immature. We will be incomplete. We will lack something. Just take James's words and turn in them opposite. Okay, so we have to have suffering. We have to have trials. I think it's very uh, significant that this section in James is immediately followed by the promise. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. What is the connection between this teaching on you need suffering and then the promise, if you lack wisdom, to ask God, he'll give it to you? How would you put those two together? Well, what's the most common question that people ask God when they go through times of intense suffering? Why? Why? All right, so let me circle back. So why do you think James would immediately say, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you? So how would you put those two together? And while you go through it, it may very well be that you'll want to know why and that you're going to have a hard time. You don't understand. It doesn't make a lot of sense to you. I mean, it's just pain. Why would you want me to go through this? You could move your little finger and the pain would stop. Why, why do you want me to feel pain right now? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And he could. I mean, Jesus could. There was no medical condition that Jesus faced that he could not heal. And he's the same now that he was then. And I'm not teaching health and wealth uh, gospel. I'm just saying Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can heal you now like he healed back then. He's not changed. So if you're asking, begging with tears coming down your face for the pain to stop and it doesn't, he must want you to feel pain. I mean, that's the only conclusion you can come to. For some reason, Jesus, you want me to be in pain now. Why? And then you ask God, and he'll tell you why. He'll, he'll give you the reason why. That's what James is saying beyond this section. All right, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Someone read that for us. Paul is actually asserting there that the trials of our lives are light and momentary. What, what does that mean to you? Light and momentary. Fantastic. Those two go together. Thank you for mentioning that. Romans 8, 18 in this text are side by side in my book chapter, and they're, side, they're in our minds. Why? Because... Time is less than eternity. Just start there. Eternity is infinitely more important than anything that happens in our temporal lives. That's what momentary means. What is your life, your whole life? It's a mist or a vapor that appears for a little while and burns off. This morning, I looked out over my window and there, through my window, and there was all this, I don't know where it was for you guys, but there was this mist all over the place. I did not expect it to last all day. You know, I've been through this before, just like you. It's like, there it is, the morning mist, just like James talked about. That's your life, James says. It's a mist that burns off. It's gone. But then the word light, what does that mean? Light. 
And it's not saying that it's not a significant thing and all that, but keep in mind, Isaiah the prophet, speaking for God, speaking inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, all the nations are like dust on the scales and drops from a bucket. That's all the nations of earth. So the thing is, it's just not a weighty thing, ultimately. What's weighty, what's massive, is God's glory and the work he's doing in saving your soul. Now, that's a massive, weighty thing. The, the pain that you have to go through to get there is light compared to that. That's what Paul's saying. And again, keep in mind who wrote that. Well, Paul, you haven't been through much. Oh, really? <laughs> Paul actually said he'd suffered more than any Christian he knew. I've been through more of this. I've been through more of that. Of all the people I know, nobody's, nobody can top my sufferings. Been stoned, been in prison, been in prison more frequently. Well, yeah, he was beheaded at the very end. He wasn't. Well, you knew that. <laughs> if you survived beheading, I, I want to talk to you. That's, that's a big moment. He actually, though, it seems like he did survive stoning. I mean, and the thing that's amazing about surviving stoning, I mean, it was meant to be, to be a death penalty. What's amazing is he got up and preached the next day. Uh, now, Paul obviously suffered a great, great deal, and, and we need to understand that. Now, let's, let's move on and talk about our faith heroes. Now, Paul has presented himself as a role model. And this is just so important for us. We can't learn this from a book alone. doesn't matter how good the book is. I'm not going to be able to write a better book than Jeremiah Burroughs, and he can't write uh, better on, on contentment and suffering than the Apostle Paul. But the writing alone is not enough. You have to live it. You have to get out and live it. You learn this by experience. However, because that's true, other people's experiences can be very helpful. You can read about them in a book too, I get it. But learning how other brothers and sisters in Christ um, you know, live through suffering and the things that we can learn from them is, is vital. Romans 15.4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, you know... For us, as we read the scriptures, we're able to, to feed our hope and get, and get strengthened. How would you say, what's the relationship between Christian hope and contentment? How would you connect them? Yeah, I mean, there, it's, this is, I think you could say the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious state is a hope state. You're looking ahead with optimism, to put it in a, in a secular kind of term. You believe, it's a feeling, a sense in your heart that the future is bright and worth living. And you're glad to go to it. And that's, I think, very closely related to, if not the same to some degree, as Christian contentment. You, are, you believe the future is bright, and especially the eternal future. So that's hope. And we, we, as we study the examples, Romans 15, 4 says, the examples in the past, they're written to give us hope. And one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on this is Romans, uh, sorry, Hebrews 11. And you, you read the, the heroes of the faith, you know, we, the examples of the patriarchs of, of Noah, of Enoch, Noah, and it goes through all of these. He just goes right through, you know, redemptive history from the Old Testament. But I find this really interesting section here in Romans, uh, I keep saying Romans, Hebrews 11, 32 and following. He, he gets into summation mode. He gets into summary mode. He says, look, I could just keep going. But I just want to sum up what I'm saying. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. 
Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves and holes in the ground. So what variety of outcomes do you see in this passage? This is summation mode, but how do you see a variety of experiences of outcomes here? All right, so we're talking about people who are as destitute and persecuted as you could ever imagine, right? But is that all that he discusses in this summary section here? Look at the beginning of it. After he lists the names, what did those folks achieve? Conquered kingdoms. That sounds good. I'm thinking if you're going to go to war and whatever, you might as well win. So they, they, they do all these great things. So I noticed when I was preaching through Hebrews 11, something like 53 sermons I preached in that chapter, I got so much grief from the elders about it. It's like, are you ever going to leave Hebrews 11? Just asking. That was Nathan Finn um, asking questions about that. But I love this chapter. But look at verse 35. I see a kind of a continental divide there in which like all the waters flow in one direction and then suddenly it all flows a different direction. Do you see what goes, what happens in verse 35? What's the first half of the verse? All right, women receive back their dead, raised to life, right? You think about, you know, Elijah who raised the dead and, and it's like, I would consider that a happy day. But others... What happened to others in the same verse? Tortured and they never got out. You know, like, is that of the two outcomes, I would rather the first than the second. And honestly, from that point on, everything that's listed is hard. Everything. There's not a single uh, other example. So it's almost like right in the middle of that verse, it's like you've gone from what the world might consider success to what the world might consider failure. All of it's part of the, the faith experience. So we're looking at a great deal of suffering that follows in the middle of that continental divide. And so we have to learn by faith to suffer, not just by faith to have your best life now. What would Joel Osteen do with the rest of that section? I'm thinking, tortured, refused to be released. They need more faith. It's like, friend, they're in the faith chapter. They're examples of faith. That's the point. By faith, you can suffer. By faith, you can not be released. By faith, you can endure torture and even death by faith. That's what the author of Hebrews is giving us here. And church history is filled with these kinds of stories of people that went right to the finish line and died for Jesus. And they were willing to die because they believe this world is not all there is. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed that, that it's better by far to depart and be with Christ. And so they had no fear. They're singing as they're dying. Like Paul and Silas and Philippians in jail. We should not imagine that they thought, oh, we're going to be released tomorrow. They didn't know. They could easily have been executed the next day. And so you have all these stories. I'm not going to go through them, but I just love martyr stories of how martyrs like Felicitas, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, all of the Polycarp, all of these were willing to die courageously such that Tertullian said the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. What does that mean to you? You've heard that before, I'm sure. Blood of martyrs is seed for the church. You have to imagine like in the Colosseum as they're watching Christians die and it's not much of a show. 
I mean, they're just wrapping these Christians up in the skins of animals and then setting ferocious beasts on them, and they just rip them to shreds. There's nothing to watch. It's gross. But they're singing, they're praying, they're trusting, they're dying well. You have to imagine in the hearts of some unconverted elect people that are watching that, they're like, you know, I don't have what they have. I'm afraid to die. You know, Hebrews says that all their lives they're held in slavery by their fear of death. And so they're afraid to die, and these Christians aren't. How can I get that? And so a willingness to be content in the midst of suffering. Not minimizing, not minimizing the pain of the nails, like I said, with, with uh, uh, Jesus and crucifixion. We're not minimizing, like we don't know what's going on. You are being executed. You're being burned at the stake. These are terrible moments. Or I think about the example of the Moravians to John Wesley. Look at this. This is Wesley uh, had, had, was a, a very legalistic, moralistic, unconverted man, I would say. I think he would say that. When he went on a mission trip to Georgia, uh, to the colonies, and uh, he was just searching. He had, he had no answers. And he was a failure in, as a missionary. It just didn't go well. And he's just empty and searching at this point. He's uh, sailing back across the Atlantic, and the ship got into a violent storm. You know, definitely a life-threatening storm. And there was a group of who he calls Germans, uh, Moravians, that are there. And they're just not afraid to die at all. And he is. And so this is his account. At seven, I went to the Germans. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior, of their humility they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts. Do you hear that? They, like, they want the most menial tasks on board that no one else wanted because it helped humble them. It was good for their proud hearts and their loving Savior had done more for them. See, these are the things they're saying while they're taking on these really menial, disgusting tasks. And every day, said Wesley, had given them occasion of showing a meekness which no injury could move. In other words, you could insult them, whatever, and they were just, they continued stable and humble. They're just putting contentment on display. That's what they're doing. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouths. I mean, that's the very thing we've been talking about, to go through that and not murmur, not complain at all. It's incredible. See, he's watching all this. There was now an opportunity of trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. In the midst of the psalm wherewith the service began, so they're having a service on deck, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. Can you imagine what that would have looked like in a wooden sailing vessel in the 1700s? And the thing's going down and there's just... The, the ocean is swept across so that you almost can't see the ship. And then it rises again, almost like rising from the dead. And you're like, it's just a matter of time. I mean, you're days away from the shore either direction. So there they were. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sang on. They just continue to sing. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. Wow. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no. 
our women and children are not afraid to die. It's incredible. Now, what effect is that going to have on an unconverted mortal, moralist like uh, Wesley, who was afraid to die, who knew that his righteousness was like filthy rags? He had nothing to cling to. He was not in a converted state. Wouldn't be long after that. He started reading uh, Luther's uh, introduction of the commentary on Galatians, whatever, and pretty soon after that, in the very famous language the Methodists all know, that his heart was strangely warmed. He was converted. He felt that he did trust Christ. That moment happened. But at that point, it hadn't. What effect do people like that have on a guy like Wesley? How would the display of Christian contentment be very impactful in a setting like that? And again, if you, if you just mix in some of the doctrines we've covered, covered, the doctrine of providence, this was a storm sent by God. He orchestrated the storm. Why? Because he wanted, I believe, to put the Moravians' faith on display. I mean, you can, in, the, in retrospect, you have to say, what other purpose is it? They made it safely. You know, they fixed the sail, they got, they got out of it, and they got home. Then why would God do it? Well, I don't know, in the end, everything God is doing. But I think to put the Moravians' faith on display, we could say, would be a ready answer. And we've already seen the example of Sarah Edwards and George Mueller. I won't go back there again. Now, you have to understand, and I covered this somewhat on Wednesday, so if you were there on Wednesday, you, you heard this. The world's, this topic makes the world angry, actually. Uh, the existence of evil and suffering in the world, to them, to many of them, proves that there is no God. If you want to see an example of the rage, read Elie Wiesel's Night. He was a, a, a Holocaust survivor. And basically how his faith, his normal kind of Jewish faith, just went out at Auschwitz. It's just there cannot be a God like I've understood. A sovereign, powerful, loving God of Israel. Well, he doesn't exist. I mean, for me, he died in Auschwitz. And it's a sad thing to read for me as a Christian. You read that and you're like, wow. And the anger, and, and like he's going to haul God to the bar of justice, and he's going to ask him questions. Somewhat like Job, you know, where Job's like, I've got a question to ask you about your justice. Really, Job, do you? You remember how God puts him in his place at the end? It's like, where were you, oh, questioner? You know, where were you when I did this and that? But this is what happens, and it's not just, just them. There are just so many that, that ask this question. This is from Tim Keller's book, uh, The Reason for God belief in an age of skepticism, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. I mean, you've heard things like this. Now, one thing Keller points out in his book, he said, do you realize how arrogant that is? In other words, if I can't perceive a reason for it, if I can't work it out, then there must be no reason for the evil, and therefore there must be no God. That's very arrogant. How could you say, I have worked this through to the nth degree, and I know there can be no possible good that could ever come of this evil? We believe differently. But how could we, by our Christian contentment, especially in suffering, help answer some of those questions? How could we give an answer to the world who's asking these kind of questions? Absolutely. And I think we can see that if we have been through extraordinary suffering, that even the world would say, no, that's a big deal. You know, you lost your child or you yourself went through years of chemo or something like that. They might at least be quiet enough to listen to your answer. I would say this, I would approach it this way, that all evil, all sin is essentially intrinsically irrational. It's just like insanity embodied anyway. Your question isn't so much about that, because God doesn't do evil. He's a very rational, orderly being. Your question is, why doesn't he do such and such about evil? 
Why does he permit it? Why doesn't he crush it right away, etc.? And actually, it's interesting you should ask that because, you know, God actually wants to draw evil out. I'm going to say this in my sermon in a few minutes. God actually wants to draw evil out and put it on display. He wants us to see it. And then he's going to kill it. And that's the beautiful thing. There is a story being unfolded here. But in the meantime, we are so woven up in it. And this is part of what I'm going to say about the millennium. We are so woven up in it, it's really hard to extricate it out from us. It's, it's a very difficult process. And so God in his salvation, redemptive plan is doing precisely that. Now, whether they can hear it or not, I don't know. Uh, I think, however, uh, elect people eventually are going to be ready to hear that. And they're going to say, you know, there is a reason, there's a purpose for these things so we can't see it all. So the question, why, O oh Lord, it's asked many times in the Bible, many times. I don't put it on the sheet here, but I want to say there are a number of, of um, examples of God asking us that. I mean, you remember through Nathan the prophet where God asked David, why did you do it with Bathsheba? He gave, I gave you this, I gave you that, I gave you, why did you do this? So God actually asks us that question right back at you. I'm going to say to you, after all I've done to you, why have you sinned? Or why didn't you trust me? Didn't Jesus say that to his disciples after stilling the storm? Why were you so afraid? He asked them that question. So just keep that in mind. It's not in your sheet here, but God asks us the same question. Why? Just in other ways. But here's the psalmist. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Etc. Uh, Job says, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? He's asking there, why were they even born? Why would you even bring someone into the world only to get, bring them into, into, into misery and, and sorrow? He's talking about that. And we go through situations. You, I've heard these kinds of things when specific things happen. There's a death of a loved one, especially a death of a child or some other tragedies. Like, I don't understand why God couldn't just have healed her. I mean, why, I mean, why not? So those are questions that we ask. Now, first of all, I want to say providence teaches that you brought the question to the right place. So what do I mean by that? Why, O oh Lord, that actually you have brought the question to the right place? Absolutely. The alternative would be for God to say, don't bring it to me. I didn't do this. I didn't bring Hurricane Katrina, or I didn't make that earthquake happen, or I didn't, that's not, don't bring, I don't do that kind of thing. Now, I can help you in the aftermath. Like, that's not the God of the Bible. So we believe that all of these things are under his sovereign direct control. It's not spinning out of control. He is sovereignly in charge. So that's the doctrine of providence. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything. Every little detail. Joseph said to his brothers, as we've seen, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about um, that many people should be kept alive today as they are kept alive as they are today. So everything that happens in this world happens from God. God ordains it. It's right to ask. Job said it. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. May the name of the Lord be praised. There's, that's absolute orthodox truth. And if you look at what he's talking about, he's talking about, among other things, his 10 children. The Lord gave me my 10 children. He took them away. I don't know anybody else that has lost 10 children in one day. So that's extreme and uh, amazing. We've already covered the fact that if we, ask, if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. But when you ask, you should believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from God. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what God is saying is, when you come, expect that I'm going to give you wisdom. 
It might not come right away, but expect I'm going to tell you ultimately the why question. Ultimately. So, three initial answers to the why question. First, God is working out his purposes for his own glory, especially in the salvation of the elect. Could someone read Romans 8, 28 through 30? Yeah, I want you to keep those three verses together. I think Romans 8, 28 is often quoted, especially in times of suffering, but people forget what follows. It is true that in the most detailed way, God is orchestrating circumstances. Again, it is not the case that God takes the lemons that the world hands him and makes lemonade. He's just really good at that. That's open theism, the idea that God's reacting to free will decisions, didn't, couldn't predict them. But when they come, look what he does with it. He just does that every day. He is like the best sweet lemonade maker there's ever been. And we keep handing him lemons, and he keeps cutting them up and making lemonade. Look what he can do. What a great God we serve. That is not the God of the Bible. God works in everything. He is working out everything for his purpose. But the purpose has to do with salvation of the elect in Christ. That he's taken a, a numberless elect from every tribe, language, people, and nation and is orchestrating circumstances to bring them finally to salvation in the new heaven and new earth in, in resurrection bodies and glory. That's what he's doing. And that process is painful and intricate, but that's what he's doing. So how would that big overarching answer help us as we go through suffering? Yeah, and if we keep reading, if you look at Romans 8, what he's doing in you, if you're elect, is conforming you to Christ. That's what's going on. He's making you like Jesus so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he calls it by a different name in the next verse, glorified. He is conforming you to Christ's glorious nature. And for you to say, you know, I'm just about there. I'm like 99. I don't need much more work. If God, the great, the great sculptor, would just a little tap here, a little tap there, and I will be perfect, you don't know yourself. If you're thinking God needs to lop off huge chunks of marble to get me to look like the image of his son, go to it, God, then you probably know yourself a little better then. And you're like, boy, that sounds painful. It is. And by the way, he's not just doing it in you, but he's doing it in other people around you, and he's going to use your suffering to help sanctify them too. There's a whole complex thing going on here. So for us to keep that in mind, to understand that, the blood of martyrs is seed for the church, and so it's going to be costly to get people saved and sanctified. Secondly, and part of that process, is that God brings suffering into our lives to wean us from idols. We are so idolatrous our hearts are idol factories, John Calvin said. We are always finding some creature, some created thing, and putting way too much importance on that thing. How often does that happen? I would say it happens just about every day. Anything you like, it's like a tar baby. You go to hug it and it sticks to you. You know what I'm saying? You start loving it too much and you get addicted to it. You know what I'm saying? It's just there. You just start doing it more and more. And so God wants to wean us off of creatures, off of created things to love him and him alone. C.S. Lewis said this very uh, famously, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. One of the things as I worked on that is I, I said, you know, honestly, what is it God is whispering in our pleasures? What is it that God is speaking in our conscience? What is it that God is shouting in our pain? 
It's, I am your God. I am your treasure. I am your very great reward. You are my people. I want a covenant relationship with you. That's what he's saying. I am your everything. And we need like a, like a megaphone to hear that because we are so idolatrous. So the scripture memory I'm doing right now is in um, Hosea. Hard book. It's hard. It's hard at a lot of levels because it's hard to see in Gomer yourself. Now, you know the story. Hosea was a prophet and God told him, now I want you to go take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. That's what your family life's going to be like. Why? Because Israel's guilty of the worst spiritual adultery in pursuing after Baal. So he's going to live out this, this horror. And he's got to talk to his children and say, contend with your mother because she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. And let her take that adulterous look off her face. And, and just the pain that's involved in that. And you, and you look at that. And then at, at one point, you know, look at Hosea 2, 6, 6 through 10. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband at first, for then I was better off than now. Ah. Oh. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So in other words, talking to Israel, I'm going to block her in so that she has nowhere to turn but to me. And what C.S. Lewis says about that, if God were proud, he would hardly have us back on such terms, right? I have nowhere else to turn. Will you take me in? But God is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And we come to him because there's nothing better now to be had. I mean, do you not see well, like, what man, self-respecting man would take the wife back? He actually in, in, in uh, Hosea 3 has to go buy her time. So I'm going to buy you for a month and you need to stay with me and not be with any other men. We're going we're gonna to be together. We're going to be a family for at least a month. I'll pay, for, pay you for that. It's a sad story. And you're like, is my heart really like that? Yeah, it is. And like, what's going to wean us off the idols? C.S. Lewis would say, the Bible would say, pain is the most effective. It weans us from the idols and it works in our hearts. And going back to Romans 8, it fits us for glory. It gets us ready for glory. So that's part of it. By the way, don't you see the same thing in the prodigal son? What made the prodigal son go back to his father? Hunger, nowhere else to turn. It's the same story. Frankly, Gomer and the prodigal son are the same person. And we are that person. And it's like we are prone to wander. Um, also, as we said, uh, affliction builds character in Christ. All right. This is amazing. We're not going to finish. All right. I, at, in the handout, I give you seven meditations and prayers to say to God. Let me read them, and then I'm going to say a few things about complacency, and we'll, we'll be done. Um, you know, each one of these headings is worthwhile, but I feel like we've covered some of them already. Like the pain and the tears, God doesn't minimize them. It's not like God isn't aware that it hurts you. He's very aware. I mean, he is gracious and compassionate. He has tremendous compassion. He says, don't abuse the poor and needy, or the, or the widow and the, uh, the orphan, because she'll cry out to me, and I'm compassionate, and I'm going to hear her, and I'm going to come after you. He says that. He says, I will hear from heaven because I'm compassionate. We see the same thing in, with Jesus with, with uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus when he wept. 
He's like, he feels what we feel. There's a compassion here. He's going through it too. I actually see it in the, in the crucifixion, right? How did God the Father show, just in terms of circumstances, God the Father now, that the crucifixion of his son was hard for him, emotionally hard? It went dark. The sun didn't shine. It wasn't just like something blocked it. It was like an eclipse. It was just like God just made it almost like night there. Eerie. What else? The moment Jesus died, there was a violent earthquake and the rock split in two. So you get a sense from the Father, this is not an easy day for me. To, you know, pour out my wrath on my son for you. I love him. And now I'm torturing him for you. But it was for the joy set before the Father too. And he did that. You see, he's willing to do that. So this is not, he's not dispassionate. He knows that it's hurting you. And he wants you to cry out to him. That's what the Psalms teach you how to do, is you cry out to him, this hurts. Tell me about it. Please tell me. And he'll weep along with you, but he's not going to stop because he's more tough-minded than we are. He's like, you need this, you're going to stick in it. But I hear you, I could heal you, it's true, but I'm not going to, and this is what's going to happen. This is what God does. So the pain and the tears are real. So these are seven things you can meditate on and pray to God. God, you are my mighty king, and I am your humble servant. Just work on that. Think about that. Everything you as the king ordain is right. You are the king, I'm the servant. I am yours to command. Secondly, you are also my tender and compassionate father. You love me. You care about me more than I can imagine. You are also, God, my very great and eternal treasure. You are what I'm going to get when I die. I get you. And I can experience foretaste of you now through the Holy Spirit. I can get a deposit on my final billions of inheritance. I can get a stipend check right now of sweet fellowship with you, heavenly enjoyment. You are my treasure. Fourth, like Sarah Edwards said, God, I must kiss the rod and cover my mouth. So I know I need chastisement as a sinner. I know this isn't coming because I've sinned in some specific way, but I also know I'm a sinner and I need hard things to fit me for heaven. And so I'm going to kiss the rod like Sarah Edwards did when she found out that her husband had died. And I'm going to cover my mouth because there's still stuff in here. <laughs> and if I don't cover my mouth, I'm going to say some things that later I will regret. So I'm going to kiss the rod and cover my mouth. Jesus, you are with me as I walk through the fire. When you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. When you walk through the water, it's not going to overwhelm you. You're going to be with me. That's the language of Isaiah. But I know you're going to be with me like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a fourth figure down there in the fire with them. Jesus is with you. He's, he's Emmanuel. He has not left you alone. The Apostle Paul said, at my first defense, everyone supported me. Before Caesar, Nero, may it not be held against him, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. It's incredible. See, Jesus is going through it with you. Six, God, you are fitting me for heaven. This is light and momentary. And he actually says in, in 2 Corinthians that these sufferings are preparing for us a weight of glory that far awaits them all. We actually need them. They're, it's not that, that it's just suffering and it's not even worth comparing. It's they're actually necessary to fit us for heaven. And then, God, you have put me up on a lampstand. Help me to shine to everyone in the house, everyone around me. I want to do the work. I think those are seven good meditations when you're going through suffering. All right, one last word on, on complacency. I was teaching this uh, topic, Christian contentment, to some missionaries in Africa this past summer. And one of the missionaries came up and said, you know, I never thought that contentment was a good thing. I mean, in a lost and dying world, I mean, how can we just be content with that? So I thought it was a, a, a weighty question. But I, I thought that the more I pondered it, it showed a, a kind of a basic misunderstanding of contentment. So I thought that the word that more described what he didn't want was complacency. 
What does that word mean to you, complacency? Yeah, just accept it. Don't try to fight it. Can't do anything about it. It's like couch potato Christianity, you know? It's like, I am who I am. I'm not going to change. Things are what they are. They're not going to change. People, they're going to, there are Muslims, Buddhists, atheists. Well, what can we do about that? So there's nothing. That's complacency. You're just going to accept the status quo. Well, on earth, I would say the status quo is the devil's. We have to kind of go show amazing strength and energy to go change things. If you just let it go, the world lies in the grip of the evil one. And so we don't just lay back. We don't let go and let God. I don't, I don't believe in that. I actually think that the journey of holiness, the internal journey of holiness, is like crossing a whitewater river to get to the other side. And you've got this straight line that you've got to stick on. And at every moment, you need to show amazing, amazing spiritual strength. You're going to get swept downstream. Like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So if you just kind of let go and let God in the Whitewater River, what do you think is going to happen to you? All right, you'll be swept downstream. So you actually have to walk with courage and strength every moment to be holy, to fight sin in the internal nature. And then concerning the lost, they're not going to be easy to win. Unreached people groups are hard to reach. That's why they're still unreached. We're surrounded here in this triangle region by serial rejectors of the gospel. That's what you're going to face at the workplace. Serial rejectors. They've heard many times and they don't believe it. And it's your job to try to lead them to Christ. So you could argue it's somewhat harder here in many cases than it would. But we're not going to get attacked or persecuted like that. We're not going to get incarcerated. But you know what I mean by it's hard to lead these people to Christ. They've heard it many, many times before. But we've got, we've got work to do. So fu- fundamentally, Christianity, biblical Christianity is like a raging fire within us. If you're a healthy Christian, you're going to have a zeal that burns within you, right? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We see a fire in Jesus when he makes that whip, right? And cleanses the temple. He's not complacent. He's not just accepting it. So um, what do I want to say? I don't know. I don't know what I, I wrote this chapter like about two months ago. But I think what I want to say is contentment is not complacency. Contentment actually feeds and protects zeal. This is how it works, okay? Missionaries go overseas, like Adoniram Judson goes over with his wife, Nancy. They get there, and what do they find when they get there? Intense suffering and struggle, right? If they don't have the contentment we've been talking about today, what will happen to their mission? What will happen to their commitment? Once they start seeing no one come to Christ, they start burying children, he buries a wife, what do you think is going to happen? He'll go home. He'll stop. He won't keep being a missionary. That's what's going to happen. Contentment will enable him to bear up under that, be a witness in the middle of that, and continue. So they're not set off against each other. Complacency, as I've defined it here, is evil. It's, it's a satanic deception, and it's not going to look good on Judgment Day. Instead, we should have a passionate zeal for internal holiness and the spread of the gospel, and be willing to pay the price. And contentment will help us to persevere as we do that. That's how I would argue for that. Okay? So let's close in prayer and then go down. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study today. Thank you for the things that you've taught us. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen each of us to walk with you and to glorify you. Help us, O Lord, if you are preparing some of us for extreme suffering, Lord, help us to do it leaning on your spirit, leaning on brothers and sisters to pray for us so we're not alone. If some, I know, uh, here have already been through tremendous pain, continue to heal them.
continue to bring joy and peace to their hearts even as they suffer, that they know that this world is light and momentary and the next world is eternal and that you are working in us a weight of glory that will far exceed all of the sufferings we've been through. So Lord, as we turn now to go to corporate worship, strengthen each of us to worship you in spirit and truth. Help me to preach clearly on the millennium and try to make it understandable. Be with all of us in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.